Thank you, and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, probably the most common point of controversy that comes up between old or young universe interpretations of the evidence related to determining the age of the universe is radiometric dating. Yes, Scott. And that's true, whether it's between an atheistic evolutionist and a creationist, or between an old Earth and young Earth creationist. The meaning of the measurements taken using radiometric dating techniques is usually at the heart of the debate. And it is the interpretation of the data that creates the controversy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, both sides generally can agree with the measurements the various techniques generate. That's right, Scott. The contention is not if there's really that much carbon-14 or uranium-235 or whatever isotope is being assayed in a sample. It's what do the various amounts of those isotopes in the samples mean with respect to how old the sample is. Dr. Scripture, you've used the word isotope a couple of times. <laughs> Maybe you should explain what that means. A good point, Scott. Because understanding what an isotope is relates directly to understanding how radiometric dating works. A radioactive element is an unstable form of an element that, after a certain average amount of time, is likely to break down into a different form of that element, or more often, a different element altogether. Mm. And when it breaks down, it releases some of the energy it possessed that was causing the instability. And it's that energy, or highly energized particles from the nucleus of that decaying element, that is potentially dangerous to living organisms. The release of that energy or nuclear particles are like tiny lasers or bullets that can damage our cells. <laughs> well, that's one way to think of it. The thing about the breaking down of the element is, like I said, it will produce a totally different element, usually one that is then stable. So, for example, when carbon-14 breaks down, it releases a couple of particles, one of them an electron. And when it does that, the carbon-14 atom becomes a nitrogen-14 atom. And the nitrogen-14 atom is very stable. Now, Scott, do you know what form of carbon is the stable one? It's carbon-12, which is what most carbon is, right? Right. This then brings us to what isotopes are. Carbon-12 and carbon-14 are isotopes of each other. In other words, they are isotopes of carbon. Isotopes are atoms of the same element that have different numbers of neutrons, but the same number of protons and electrons. It's the difference in the number of neutrons between the various isotopes of an element that cause the various isotopes to have different masses or weight. So carbon-14 weighs more than carbon-12 because it has two extra neutrons. And it's that extra mass in the nucleus of carbon-14 that makes it unstable. Now, since those two isotopes of carbon have such different masses, we can actually identify the number of carbon-12 versus carbon-14s in a sample. And those measurements are exactly what the technique called atomic mass spectroscopy, or AMS for short, make. So that was a fairly long explanation of what isotopes are, but understanding what scientists are measuring enables you to then think through how the measurements are interpreted. 
And you can decide for yourself if what a scientist says they mean actually makes sense. Or could there be another, even a better explanation of the data they collect? So you've explained what carbon-12 and carbon-14 are, but how do scientists determine how old something is using carbon-14 dating? I assume they're measuring how much carbon-14 is in it, and from that they calculate its age, right? That is what they do. You see, all radioactive elements have a characteristic period of time called a half-life that elapses during which half of the radioactive atoms of that given isotope will decay. Now, different isotopes' half-lives will radically differ from one another. So, for example, uranium-235 decays into thorium-231 with a half-life of over 700 million years. <laughs> but carbon-14's half-life is about 5,700 years. Let me get this straight. If you had a pound of carbon-14, after 5,700 years go by, you would have one half of a pound left. Right. And I think the way it works is, after another 5,700 years, it wouldn't all be gone, only one half of that half would decay. Mm -hmm. So you would then have one quarter pound left, and then after another 5,700 years, you'd have an eighth of a pound and so on. That's how it works. So if you know with certainty how much carbon-14 was in a sample to start with, and then measure how much is in it at the present, if it has decreased, you can calculate how long it took to get from the original amount to the present amount. Now, carbon-14 dating is used on something that had been living or part of something that was alive, like a piece of a plant or a bone or even a mummy. Because everything that lives is basically made of carbon. And what isotope of carbon would that be, Scott? It would mostly be carbon-12. Correct. And where does all that carbon in living things come from? Well, I think I get a disproportionately high amount of mine from pizza. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Scott, I was thinking of everything oh, that's alive. Okay. So we're talking about the tomatoes in your pizza, the wheat in the crust, and even the pepperoni that came from the pig. Mm. All the carbon ultimately came from where? The carbon dioxide in the air? Right. Okay. That's CO2 from the atmosphere. Plants, through photosynthesis, turn the CO2 into their own plant structures. And then animals get their carbon from eating the plants. So even the pepperoni in your pizza came from a pig that ate plants that used the carbon in the CO2 from the atmosphere as their source of carbon. Now, the thing is, some of the atmospheric CO2 contains the carbon-14 isotope of carbon. And the percentage of C14 to C12 today pretty much stays the same in the atmosphere because the rate of formation of C14 is equal to the rate of its decay. And we say they're in equilibrium. Wait just a minute. You're saying a constant percentage of the CO2 in the atmosphere is radioactive. That means we're radioactive. <laughs> that's right, Scott. Everything that's alive is radioactive. It's composed of the same proportions of C12 and C14 as the atmosphere. Now, actually, Scott, it's a very tiny amount. About one out of every 100 million of our carbon atoms are radioactive, just like in the atmosphere. But that's enough for an AMS machine to measure. But there is a limit to how small of an amount that AMS can measure. And since once something dies, it no longer is replacing its carbon by photosynthesis or eating, the C14 slowly disappears from the material that once was a living or part of a living organism. 
What is very important to understand, however, is there are crucial assumptions that must be applied to the measurements for any kind of interpretation about the meaning of the measurements to be made. Scott, can you think of one of those assumptions? Well, you mentioned earlier that they're determining how much C14 had decayed away, and then using the half-life of C14, they calculate how long it would take for that much to decay away. For that measurement to be accurate, you must know the exact amount of C14 that was in the organism when it was alive before the C14 began to decrease. Excellent. So if, for sake of argument, there was a lot less C14 in the atmosphere 5,000 years ago, but we didn't know that, think about it. When a small amount of C14 compared to what is in the atmosphere today is found in a sample, what would the interpretation of that small amount left in the sample be? They would say it had gone through many half-lives and be very old. Right. When actually, the small amount of C14 in the sample wasn't due to its being very old. It was because it had a much smaller amount of C14 in it to begin with. So you can see that the assumption that the amount of C14 in Earth's atmosphere has been constant over thousands and thousands of years is absolutely crucial if the carbon-14 dating technique is to have any validity today. And that's just one of the assumptions, but it should make the point. All the scientists, old Earth or young Earth, can agree on the measurements of carbon-14 in a sample, but the interpretations of what those measurements mean can be very different. Now, we all have to use some assumptions. That's the nature of science. But the fewer we use, the better. Scott, wouldn't you say the more we can rely on observable evidence, the better? Oh, of course. Empirical evidence is what science is supposed to deal with as much as possible. Spoken like a true scientist. Oh, thank you. But that priority is ignored by those scientists who are convinced of the reality of what we'll call deep time for the origin and existence of the universe, the earth, and life. The reason I wanted to discuss this issue is because of a fascinating article recently published in the Creation Research Society Quarterly, which we'll refer to as CRSQ. In the spring of 2019 issue of CRSQ, which is volume 55, number four, there's an article entitled Deep Time Philosophy Impacts Radiocarbon Measurements. And what the authors, Vernon Cups and Brian Thomas, do is they expose how deep time inherents interpret radiometric dating, in this case carbon-14, with a particular assumption that should not be accepted. Because their assumption precludes and actually sets aside any opportunity to evaluate the actual empirical measurements when interpreting what those measurements mean. When it comes to carbon-14 dating, the scientists that believe in billions of years answer the question of how old an artifact is before they even do the measurements. If that's true, why do they even do the measurements? Good point, Scott. And in fact, for the things that they assume are too old to date using the AMS carbon-14 dating technique, they don't do the measurements. Mm. Their contention is that after in the neighborhood of 100,000 years, given the relatively short half-life of carbon-14, there will be no detectable carbon-14 left. So there's no point in trying to use carbon-14 dating on any sample 100,000 years or older. 
and certainly not on anything that's millions of years old, according to their assumptions. The rub is, scientists who don't proceed with the deep-time philosophy do take carbon-14 measurements of samples, and they are able to make some interpretations based on empirical data, which invalidate the assumptions of the old universe scientists. Now, this article, which I'm going to begin to discuss, is truly remarkable. In my estimation, it is a watershed type of statement, because what it does is empirically expose the fallacy of the foundational assumption used by deep-time scientists when they use carbon-14 dating to determine the age of an artifact. And I want to emphasize, it's empirical data, not a philosophical, logical train of thought that these authors use to make their argument. And the upshot of the work that Dr. Cups and Dr. Thomas have done is this. There is too much carbon-14 in samples of material considered too old for carbon-14 dating to be explained away simply because of contamination. The fact that any carbon-14 is found in coal that's supposedly 300 million years old or in fossils from the Cretaceous period assumed to be around 110 million years old demonstrates they cannot be that old. What the authors show is that just using mildly rigorous controls to the procedures for carbon-14 dating indicates that there's enough carbon-14 in those samples that contamination is not an adequate reason for how that carbon-14 is present. And so we'll look at some of the details of this remarkable article in next week's program. But given the way these assumptions that the deep time philosophers make regarding evidence, it reminds me of what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, when he talks about how the mockers have mistaken assumptions. They assume that their uniformitarian view is correct. But concerning that, Peter says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And that's not what I say, that's what Scripture says.